Brothers and sisters in the Dharma, Namo Buddhaya, Jai Bin. Jai Bin. So a very warm welcome to the Padmaloka Shrine Room and a very warm welcome to uh, this celebration of Vaishaka Purnima, the full moon of Vaishak, the day on which we honour and celebrate the enlightenment of the Buddha Shakyamuni the enlightenment of Siddhartha Gotama, the day in which we celebrate really the very origins of what we've come to call Buddhism, of the Buddha Dharma, the Buddha Dhamma, uh, in the world. It all begins under the Bodhi tree, at Bodhgaya, at the Vajrasana, with the Buddha breaking through, uh, emerging, uh, attaining whatever language that you want to use, full and perfect supreme enlightenment or awakening, if you prefer. Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi, uh, the day in which the knowledge arose, the light arose, the eye of reality opened, uh, the day on which the Buddha attained perfect liberation from the forces of birth and death, liberation from old age, sickness and death. It's also the birthplace, of course, of great compassion, Maha Karuna, Maha Anukampa, the great shaking with all of life, because the Buddha's enlightenment, of course, is not just personal, it's not just for him, as it were, it's for the benefit of each and every living being. There is no one-sidedness in enlightenment, as Bhante Sangharachita once said. Enlightenment isn't one-sidedly to do with oneself. It embraces uh, the whole of life. And of course, after his enlightenment, the Buddha spent the rest of his days until he was a very old man of 80, just spreading his Dhamma, communicating his liberating uh, teaching out of compassion, for the world, for the benefit and the welfare of all beings, of all men, of all women, uh, whatever their circumstances, whatever their uh, particular particular details of their life. It's very important that we honour properly uh, Buddha Jayanti, as it's called in India, Vaishaka Purnima, Buddha Day as we call it here. It's so important that we celebrate these Buddhist festivals and of course this year the celebration is very, very unusual um, because we're having to do it in small spaces, uh, sometimes just with our families or communities or even on our own because of the miracles of modern technology. We can connect up around the world and you know, be out of our particular place. But nonetheless, that doesn't, it's not the same as being with one another, properly celebrating and... Uh, and, and so on. But we can be together in, in some way or other on, online. And also, of course, we can be together through sharing the same devotion, uh, the same faith to, towards the Buddha, the same faith in the Buddha. We can be together because of our common going for refuge. But it's so important that we spend today really contemplating the full significance to the extent that we can of the Buddha's enlightenment, of the Buddha's great liberation, 
really so important to meditate on that because that's what makes us Buddhists. That's what makes our order and movement a Buddhist movement and order. I remember it's somewhere in The Three Jewels, I think. Uh, Sangharachita's book, The Three Jewels, Bhante's book, The Three Jewels. He talks about all sorts of aspects of Buddhist culture, be it Tibetan pujas, you know, Theravadin chanting ceremonies, a Zen flower arrangement, the way a monk answers a question in, in, in London, different things. He said they're all marked. They're all marked with the spirit of Bodhi. They're all marked with the spirit of enlightenment. That's what makes us distinctive. You know, we have all sorts, you know, in our order these days, we have all sorts of activities, you know, going on all sorts of organisational things, all sorts of meetings and retreats, ordination processes, classes and centres, online activities, wonderful wonderfully altruistic work going on in, in some parts of our, of our movement, especially in India. That's a, a very wonderful thing. But we mustn't forget what we're really about. It all must stem from the Buddha's enlightenment. It must be to do with the communication of that indefinable quality of enlightenment. So at least once a year, I'm sure we do it more than once a year, but at least once a year we can devote the whole day to contemplating the Buddha's enlightenment, meditating on the Buddha's enlightenment, really trying to, you know, really tune into it, as it were, sink into it, really trying to get the sense of its full significance beyond the words, because of course enlightenment, the Buddha himself says, is atakavacharo. It's beyond the reach of reason. It can't be touched by thought. It transcends all of that. It's profoundly peaceful in the sense of, in the deepest sense, in the sense that it, it doesn't have any disturbance of klesha, of defilement, of, of any kind. Uh, it's, it's way beyond our comprehension. It's Lokutra, you know, that which lies beyond the Trilokya, the three worlds, the three planes of conditioned existence. So. It's not easy to meditate on the Buddha's enlightenment. And I'm thankful to have a teacher in Bhante who I feel has introduced me to the Buddha's enlightenment, who has indicated what that might be in so many different ways, in so many different teachings. It's very good to be sitting here in front of the Rupa, the Buddha image at Padmaloka, the Aloka, made some years ago. Uh, when Arloka was, I think it was more, it, it, the, the, an earlier form of this rupa is a painting uh, of the Buddha uh, seated in, in meditation, which we have in our other shrine room. And when we were talking about what that painting might look like and what this image might look like, I said, well, it would be good if it could have something of the quality of the way in which Bhante talked about the Buddha on the Udana seminars and uh, Aloka knew exactly what I was talking about because he was on one of those seminars. The Udana is a collection of Pali suttas which Bhante was very fond of uh, and did two seminars on it, one under canvas uh, in, a, in an encampment um, 
that uh, all the members of Mitras had, had, had uh, thrown up uh, when he was on retreat down in Cornwall and he would come every day to lead study on this old text and some years later he did another one in a, in a place in Sussex and I think Arloka was on the second one. And the Udana begins with a number of suttas and it has a number of suttas throughout it which depict the Buddha just after his full and perfect enlightenment. You, you have this sort of picture of the Buddha in the forest. Uh, Sangharachita says that, that perhaps there's something of the, of the shaman about him. Uh, you know, a bit like that. Not saying that the Buddha is like a shaman in, this, in, in, in the sort of technical sense, but he's someone who's gone off to the forest, to the jungle, completely alone. He's searching for a knowledge that is beyond anything that anybody knows about, is liberating knowledge and, and realisation. And he's there, not wearing immaculately pressed robes like you see in the paintings, but wearing rag robes, patched robes. Yeah, I don't know if you can see this, um, those of you who are uh, are watching this uh, on, on video. Um, actually, there is actual fabric uh, in, the, in, in, the, in the robes that, uh, or the cloth or the, 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 uh, the, the scraps that, that Arloka has, has uh, sculpted here. And they wouldn't have been, you know, they wouldn't have been a nice yellow. They'd just been discoloured rag robes. And yes, because it's an archetypal form, he's golden in colour here, a beautiful gold colour. But of course the Buddha would have certainly had a radiance about him, but he might have looked quite dishevelled. He might have, his hair might have been a bit long, he might have even had some stubble on his face, um, because of course he'd been fasting and uh, he'd been practising these ascetic practices not long before he realised that was an error. And even though he'd taken solid food and cleaned himself, and so on, he would have looked very, very strange, probably. His skin colour might have been quite dark because he'd been living out in the open uh, for so long under the sun. So he might have looked quite weathered. So he's very lean uh, and uh, very, how can I say, very lean, very, very strong, probably. Um, and really looking like somebody who's really going out there uh, beyond what we can comprehend, living this very, very stripped back and simple life and going deeply and deeply and deeply on his quest. No doubt other presentations this day will talk about that quest. I want to start post-enlightenment, which is where the Udana starts. And the Buddha is said to have been seated beneath the Bodhi tree and various other trees, for seven days in one posture, enjoying the bliss of liberation. Seven days in one posture, enjoying the bliss of liberation. This is a, a hugely important detail. The way Bhante describes it, he, 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 he feels that what's going on here is that after the great breakthrough, after the Buddha's seen directly in one flash 
that uh, great process which he describes as a becoming, but of course it's beyond comprehension, a becoming, and how becoming is bound up with ignorance, but also seeing it as the means to liberation. But after having seen that directly, without words, he is liberated. He's liberated from all negative emotional, negative affectivity. He's liberated from all ignorance and all unknowing. And uh, Bhante feels that after that there's just a period of very, very deep absorption. Very, very deep absorption before the, as it were, mind, in the sense of the reflecting mind, starts to come into operation and starts to articulate to himself what this might, how this might be described for the benefit of others, presumably, how this might be talked about, but this very, very deep absorption. And it's an absorption that is blissful. This is an incredible expression. The the seven days in one posture, experiencing or enjoying the bliss of liberation, complete liberation. There is no boundary to the Buddha's, whatever you call it, let's call it his consciousness. There is no boundary to his heart. There is no boundary to his being whatsoever. And that is blissful. It's ecstatic, even. Uh, that's, that, that's what seems to be uh, what, well, it's not seems to be, it's what the, the Buddha says it is. This, this great bliss of, of liberation. I think it's very important that uh, we do remember that the Buddha's enlightenment is blissful. In the Dhammapada, he uses the phrase Nibbanam Paramang Sukhang. Nibbana is the supreme bliss, the supreme happiness. And of course, everybody wants to be happy. We're all searching for happiness and satisfaction. Well, the Buddha says it is, Nirvana is the supreme bliss. Uh, but of course, it's a bliss like no bliss we can possibly imagine or comprehend because it's completely outside of the framework of self and other subject and object. It's completely liberated from that framework. So there's this very, very deep absorption. So we really have to picture this, really try to imagine this deep absorption that the Buddha uh, is undergoing. And yes, the deep absorption and then the reflection on his enlightenment takes place under the Bodhi tree. But as the Udana goes on, it describes other experiences. It's very interesting, in, in, again, I think it's in the Three Jewels, Sangharakshita says enlightenment isn't sort of one experience, to use that word, but it's a whole sequence a whole unfoldment of, as it were, experiences that the Buddha undergoes. So it's very important that when we contemplate the Buddha's enlightenment, yes, we contemplate the, 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 the dawning of the three, of the tree vidya, the three knowledges. It's very important that we contemplate the Garava Sutta, the reverencing Buddha, the grateful Buddha, when the Buddha contemplates the Bodhi tree that has protected him. And of course, it's so important, you know, to contemplate the Buddha's encounter with the haughty Brahmin and making it clear that his teaching has an impact uh, socially 
on the whole social structure, that he doesn't accept, um, you know, the caste hegemony that was, that was present in his day. And of course, it's important that we contemplate Brahma's request and the emergence of great compassion. I want, though, to focus on another very, very important uh, description of the Buddha's uh, enlightenment, unfolding enlightenment, a very mysterious um, uh, event, very mysterious, highly symbolic. Uh, and perhaps, you know, the meaning that I'll draw out of it, um, well, I don't even know if it's the right meaning. <laughs> perhaps there isn't a right meaning because it is such a mysterious uh, incident. And, and uh, thankfully, Bhante has he has done with so many things, has opened up what its significance might be. But there's no end to the significance of, of these stories. So let's try and open up this particular uh, account, this particular story. So in this story, the Buddha is not beneath the Bodhi tree. He's beneath the Muchalinda tree, the Muchalinda tree, not far from the Bodhi tree, but he's under the Muchalinda tree, he's just realized full enlightenment and he's seating cross-legged for seven days, enjoying the bliss of liberation. And the text says, now it happened that there occurred out of season, a great rainstorm. And for seven days, there were rain clouds, cold winds, and unsettled weather. Now the Buddha's enlightenment happens in May time, uh, our May time, Vaishoka Purnima. It's very, very hot. It's the extreme of the hot season. Uh, and it seems that, um, well, before there's, there's this, there's this uh, very unsettled weather that occurs before the rains start, which is in, in June time. So there occurred, out of season, a great rainstorm and for seven days there were rain clouds, cold winds, and unsettled weather. Then Muchalinda, the Naga king, the Naga Raja, left his dwelling place, and having encircled the Bhagavas, that's the Blessed One, the Buddha's body, seven times with his coils, he stood with his great hood spread over the Bhagavas' head to protect the Bhagava thinking, don't let the Blessed One be disturbed by cold. Don't let the Blessed One be disturbed by heat. Don't let the Blessed, don't let the blessed One be disturbed by the touch of flies, mosquitoes, by the wind, the sun, and creeping things. At the end of those seven days, the Bhagava emerged from that Samadhi, then Muchalinda, the Naga king, seeing that the sky had cleared and the rain clouds had gone, removed his coils from the Bhagavad's body. It's a really mysterious incident, isn't it? So Muchalinda, this Naga king, uh, he comes out. So he's a great snake. I mean, uh, Nag in, in, in India to this day is the cobra. You know, the, you, you have these, these Naga Rajas, these, these great cobras, um, and he comes out from his place in response to this unsettled weather, which is soaking and chilling 
the Buddha, he comes out and wraps his coils seven times around the Buddha and his great hood comes over the top of the Buddha to protect him uh, from the rain and the wind. Uh, you sometimes see depictions of this in, in, in Buddhist art. So let's just reflect a little bit on, on the Nagas. Um, yes, they're, they're snakes. Um, you see them in India. Um, I used to live at, um, you go and spend a lot of time at Bajo Retreat Center near Pune. And most days um, you'd see a snake of one kind or another. You'd have to be very careful because some of them were were very, very poisonous. You know, they're very much a part of, of Indian life, especially if you're living, you know, out in the villages or you're out in the forest or the jungle or at a retreat centre. Snakes are a part of your life. And of course, the Buddha and his disciples, they lived in the forest. They spent most of their time in the forest. So their companions would have been snakes. And of course, in Indian, well, we call it mythology, but in Indian life, these aren't just snakes. These are Nagas. You know, Nagas aren't just snakes. Nagas are sort of deities. And they're very, very important in Indian mythology, very important in Buddhist tradition. The Nagas, these great, powerful forces that live in the rivers and streams. Uh, it's even said they make it rain. You know, it's the Nagas that make it rain. Sometimes they say it's the gods that make it rain, but it's the Nagas who, you know, preside over the rivers and streams and the lakes, very much associated with the depths of things. Um, a very good friend of mine who knows Padmaloka very well said, why is it Padmaloka is where it is? And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, why is it next to a great river, the river Yeah? Why is it amongst all the swamps and, and uh, the Norfolk Broads. He said, it's because that is where the Nagas are. And you have to have Buddhist temples where the Nagas are to keep an eye on the Nagas, these great for forces, because if you don't uh, keep an eye on them, if you don't develop metta towards them, they might do damage, they might do you know, difficult things. I, you know, and he really believed this, you know, he wasn't making it up. So it isn't an accident that Padmaloka is here, according to him. You know, we are in the realm of the Nagas. We've even got, uh, 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 well, let's just say Padmaloka's water table is very high and uh, there's water very close uh, to our basements and floors and so on. So the Nagas are very close to us. We even have a little Naga uh, princess, little Naga Devi, uh, uh, on our mantelpiece just to remind us of these very deep and very powerful forces. So we're quite fond of the Nagas here and, uh, you know, it's always gratifying. Even in England where snakes, you don't see many snakes, sometimes you see grass snakes and adders here and I always get a good feeling if I see a snake uh, slithering across the, uh, the, the, the garden in the summertime, which I have uh, seen um, so the Nagas are tremendously important and uh, they're there in the life of the Buddha, both real snakes, if, well not real snakes, just visible snakes that you see day to day and the Nagas, these, these deep forces, these sort of serpent snake-like deities. 
In Buddhist mythology also, you have the whole tradition of the perfection of wisdom, the Pragnaparamita, which were revealed or found, according to some traditions, by Nagarjuna. Um, and Nagarjuna, the story of Nagarjuna's finding of the perfection of wisdom text is that these very profound sutras which deal with the depths, the Gambira Dharma, the profound Dharma, the Dharma of Shunyata, uh, the Gambira Yana, the profound way as it's sometimes called, these were entrusted by the Buddha to the Nagas. The Naga, the, the world wasn't ready, according to some traditions, for this great tradition of the perfection of wisdom. So the Buddha entrusted them to the Naga deities. And you get this uh, uh, depiction in Buddhist art of Nagarjuna going out into the ocean and a Naga Devi, a Naga princess, giving him the perfection of wisdom uh, sutras. Um, we also have this very strong connection with Nagapura, Nagpur in uh, Maharashtra, in India, the city right at the centre of India, the right exact geographical centre of India. That is the city of the Nagas. The Nagas were a, a sort of tribe in, in, in central India and they were Buddhists. And one of the reasons, the reason why Dr. Ambedkar chose uh, the Nagpur as the, the site the city of the great conversion to Buddhism, was because of its associations, its ancient associations with the Dharma. And he, was even, he even believed that uh, Dalit people uh, were really Buddhists, you know, from that, with that background. And they were just, through becoming Buddhists, by going for refuge, reclaiming you know, their heritage that, uh, that had been lost sight of. So the tradition of Nagas is very strong, these powerful deities that can become protectors. And here we have Muchalinda protecting the Buddha. Those forces outside, as it were, responding to the Buddha's enlightenment and wanting to protect him. You know, these deities, um, they, need, um, they need a king. Um, these, these deep forces, they need a king. These powerful forces need a figure to genuinely look up to. Otherwise, they, they get restless, they get anxious. And with the Buddha's enlightenment, Muchalinda, in a, in a way, has found his king. He's found his lord. So, of course, he wants to protect him. So that's one way of interpreting this particular event. But there's... Another way that you can also interpret it, that what is being described here in the Buddha's enlightenment is the complete transformation of the Buddha's psychophysical organism. That's what's really going on. The, I've said that uh, you know, the Buddha's enlightenment can be described as this boundless liberation uh, liberation from all negative emotion, all holding, all blocks, all restriction. And there's the release then of tremendous energy. Boundless energy is released. So there's a storm out of season. There's the pouring of rain. 
there's this tremendous disturbance in Vajrayana Buddhism, Tantric Buddhism, they make a lot of this. The only thing holding us back from gaining enlightenment is that we just do not have the energy. Our energy is too locked up in negative emotion or it's too dispersed, so it's not available to us or it's too coarse. It's not refined enough, it's not subtle enough. But if we could only activate, release and refine and concentrate energy, we would break through. We would break through to Buddhahood. We would break all the bonds. And Buddhahood itself is the breaking of the bond. So there's just this release of energy. You have this notion in Hindu tradition of, of Kundalini, the, the coiled up energy, the coiled up energy. And that's the Kundalini is associated with the Nagas. It's associated with, it's sometimes called a sort of serpent energy. Uh, so you could see the wrapping of the, of the coils of the snake of Muchalinda seven times around the Buddha as the Kundalini rising up through the seven chakras as, as, as you find in, in some systems of the subtle body. And you're just getting this purification, transformation of all the energies and the hood represents the unfolding of the thousand petal lotus chakra on the crown of the head. Uh, the Buddha doesn't, didn't teach that system, but it's very suggestive of that. In the, the Buddhist tantric system, the, the, the energy is called chandali rather than kundalini, it's, which means that the, the fiery one, the chandali, and it's that that needs to be liberated. But however you call it, however you describe it, I think that's a very good reading of this particular story. It's the reading that, again, that, that, that Bhante, that Sangharachita gives in The Three Jewels, that this, the enlightenment is the total transformation of one's entire psychophysical organism. Enlightenment isn't just mental. It's not just in the head. It's not an idea. It's total transformation of our entire being and our entire world come to that. Because one of the things you've also got going on here is the inner and the outer. The inner and the outer. Yes, I believe Muchalinda is a Naga king, as it were, out there, a force to, to uh, connect with, to communicate with, that is responsive to someone's enlightenment, someone's growth and development. He's also inside. You know, in ancient traditions, the outer and the inner reflect one another. You know, there isn't that uh, separation. Inner and outer are in relationship much more profoundly than, uh, than, than, than perhaps we moderns, you know, fully realise. And developments internally affect developments externally. The Buddha becomes a master, if you like, of these forces because of the transformation uh, within himself. And, you know, the, the, the rain pouring, you could see, is the, the sort of the, 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 the descent of the blessings of reality itself. Uh, rain and water uh, are often associated with blessing. And the Buddha is known as Bhagavan, the blessed one, the one filled 
with blessings. And it's the blessings of reality. It's not coming from any other uh, source. So you can, you know, read these things, you know, into this particular story. And, uh, you know, it tells me, it communicates to me the, 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 the vital importance of the total transformation of our being in our Buddhist practice. You know, it's not just about having some nice ideas and having some nice Buddhist sentiments. So much more has to be involved. So much more has to be involved internally. So much more has to be involved externally. So perhaps this is what we can gain from this particular uh, story. The story doesn't end there. Because at the end of those seven days, the Blessed One emerged from his Samadhi, and then Muchalinda, the Naga king, seeing that the sky had cleared and the rain clouds had gone, removed his coils from the Blessed One's body, magically changing his own appearance and assuming the appearance of a young man. He stood in front of the Blessed One with his hands folded together, venerating him. So the great Naga king, the great snake, changes his form having done that. He turns into this beautiful youth, this beautiful young man, 16 years old. Uh, the, 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 the Pali word for the young man, the youth, is Navaka, which means uh, new, the new one, the new one the new one. He's fresh. He's new. He's eternally new. He's the eternal youth. And uh, as soon as we start talking like this, one, we can't help but think of the forms of the bodhisattvas who are de depicted as eternally 16 years old. Uh, they're fresh, they're new, they're beautiful. Um, you know, they symbolise the, 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 the image of the youth in Indian tradition is, is the image of uh, the beginnings of real um, manhood, if you like, real maturity. The bodhisattvas are in the form that they're in because at uh, 16, uh, the, the son of the, Indian, of the Indian king, the Maharaja, is consecrated as the next king. Uh, and in uh, the symbolism of the Mahayana, the bodhisattvas take that beautiful 16-year-old form um, because it's as if the Buddha is, has consecrated them to enlightenment itself. They are the sons of the Buddha, the sons of the Buddha who are going to gain enlightenment. So we have this young man, we, we, we don't know how he, how he looks, uh, but he's very handsome, very beautiful and he venerates and worships the Buddha. So the Naga king doesn't just protect the Buddha, he venerates and worships uh, the Buddha. He turns towards the Buddha. You get a, a similar uh, story, this whole idea of a Naga becoming a youth in the life and liberation of Padmasambhava. Um, so there's a kind of continuity, if you like, between the life of the Buddha and the life of Padmasambhava. When Padmasambhava went to Tibet, the first thing that he did, he spent a year or more, I think, just communicating and subjugating and bringing on to the Dharma the gods of the land. And that included Nagas, the gods of the land and the soil. If you like, he connected with 
for want of a better phrase, the archetypes of the Tibetan collective unconscious. He really connected with that and brought them onto the Dharma so that they weren't opposing the Dharma because, according to the tradition, it was the Nagas who were particularly undermining the foundation of Samye Monastery. It was the Nagas that didn't want that to happen and it was only Padmasambhava who could communicate with those forces. So that's why he was invited you know, to come and connect with these forces. So here's a story. It's about Naga King Chalkkala. To test the Guru, the spirit of the Argalis Plateau took on the guise of a white reptile and blocked his path. The head reached the district of the Uyghurs, while the tail coincided with the Sog River of Kams and Giamotang. With a staff, the guru transfixed the, transfixed the serpent through the middle. You are the Naga king Chorkala, king of the Gandharavas with the five hair coils. Depart and prepare yourself to make a circular oblation. The spirit fled to the ice-cold snows, but the snows melted, and when the greenish ice had given way, the black mountain peak could be seen. The spirit could withstand no longer, so he served a circular oblation, decked out with dainties, and changing into a youth, a child, wearing a turquoise hairnet and a turban of white silk, he did obeisance and circumambulated. He gave the heart of his life, and having been bound by oath, he was given a hundred treasures to watch over, as his secret name, he was called Major Vadra of Great Power. So this exquisite description, changing into a youth, a child or a youth, wearing a turquoise hairnet and a turban of white silk. And Padmasambhava gives him a hundred treasures to look over. These are probably hidden teachings and ritual objects for later, uh, later generations. But again, you've got this image of a serpent deity a naga turning into a beautiful youth, worshipping the guru and wanting to support the work of the dharma. So there's so much here. You can again take it as the taming of these forces in life, in our unconscious, if you like that psychological reading, or within the world itself, within the entire world itself, within the total minds and hearts uh, of the world in which the Buddha moved. But I think you can also interpret it in another way. Uh, one of the ways I see this is what the youth, in a sense, could represent, symbolise, and you know, there's so many ways of interpreting. This is the Buddha's mind now. His mind will always have this new, fresh, sparkling quality. This ever-creative energy and quality. And that's the, the sense you get, because after the Buddha's enlightenment, there is this tremendous energy that uh, motivates the Buddha, that, that keeps going throughout the Buddha's life, that takes him to connect and communicate you know, with so many different kinds of people. And that energy is always fresh. It doesn't matter what happens 
to his body. And at the end of the Buddha's life, when he's an old man of 80, he says he's weary. He's physically weary. He's in, in terrible pain. He says he, he, he's like an old cart that can only keep going when it, by being bound together with bits of rope. It's very hard uh, for the Buddha physically, but his mind is as bright, as clear, as pure as it ever was. And he is concerned to connect with anybody and everybody. He takes the Dharma into new places. Why did he enter Parinirvana at Kushinagara, that out-of-the-way place? It wasn't one of the main places where his disciples were. It was just an old town. Well, it wasn't really even a town. It was just a village, really, in an obscure part of, of, of northern India. What was he doing? He was taking the Dharma to new places, to new people, because his mind, his enlightened consciousness was as fresh and as young and as new, not new in the sense of novelty or originality, new with a capital N in the sense of um, the latest, uh, most beautiful uh, thing, fresh and sparkling in uh, in the Dzogchen, Atta Yoga tradition of the Nyingmapa, they use wonderful metaphors for the quality of enlightened awareness. And they use metaphors like sparkling, fresh, uh, new, pure, luminous, lucid, uh, and ever creative. So that's the Buddha's mind. That's uh, the Buddha's quality. He is completely spiritually reborn. This particular story doesn't end there because every story in the Udana ends with an Udana. Um, the, an Udana, it mean, Udana means the upward moving breath. It's the utterance which is coming out of tremendous inspiration. Uh, Bhante Sankarachita says that an Udana comes out of being deeply moved, profoundly moved by what has been seen by the Buddha in this case. Uh, you, you've seen something, or you've, something's happened to you, and you just speak in poetry directly. And what the Buddha says on this occasion, the inspired saying is this, Blissful is solitude for one who is content, for one who has heard Dhamma and who sees. Blissful is non-hatred in the world, Restraint towards living creatures. Blissful is passionlessness in the world, the transcending of sensual desires. But the destruction of the I am conceit, that is truly the supreme bliss. There's a very wonderful Udana, and he sort of describes a kind of path. So I just want to end this talk by just saying a few words about this Udana. First, I mean, it, it's just, of course, just a statement of the Buddha's enlightenment in response to this experience uh, that, that has gone on. But I think we can also discern in it a path for us. So blissful is solitude for one who is content. The word for solitude is viveka, which could also be translated as isolation, which is very topical at the moment. <laughs> Um, it could be translated as det detachment, withdrawal, and withdrawal. Viveka is incredibly important in Buddhism. 
it's mentioned a lot, this sense of withdrawing you know, from the outside world, going into retreat, uh, being alone in retreat, turning away from the usual distractions. But there's a deeper viveka. The, the, the deeper viveka is the removal from, the, as it were, the lower mind, being caught up in the hindrances. That viveka is the emergence of dhyana. So, of course, the Buddha is blissful in solitude because he's supremely contented. He really doesn't need anything at all. There's just... He is the supremely solitary one because he is like no other, because he is completely liberated and his mind has no boundary. So he's supremely contented. Of course, for us on the path, it's not going to be immediately like that. We have to learn to be contented and satisfied when we're alone, when the usual things are taken away from us. And that can be a bit of a challenge for people at the moment. But we have to, this, we have to learn to positively withdraw into ourselves. And this is, of course, where meditation is so important. Withdrawing from, taking our energy out of the hindrances, craving, hatred, delusion, jealousy, all of those things, fear. We withdraw from those things and we occupy our mind with a positive object of concentration. I think particularly important here is metabhavna. Really concentrating on uh, the well-being and happiness of ourselves and others. That's a wonderfully positive object on which to meditate. Uh, especially at the moment, we need to be particularly concerned, I think, with metabhavna practice, developing loving-kindness, yes, for ourselves and others, and learning to be profoundly contented and satisfied with our solitude, even though we're being imaginatively connected with so many others. Blissful it is for one who has heard Dhamma and who sees. Well, of course, for the Buddha, hearing of Dhamma is hearing reality, the truth, because there's no formulated Dhamma really at this, at this point. There is just the supreme, direct reality. It's interesting, the metaphor of hearing, sutta, um, thus have I heard. And this is, of course, the first level of wisdom. But it is also, I think, a description of profound receptivity, profound opening up to the Dhamma, of really listening to what's there. You know, in a way, that's the description of the Buddha's enlightenment as he moves in the direction of enlightenment. First of all, he enters the dhyanas, the different dhyana states. His consciousness is just becoming profoundly open, profoundly receptive, because it's becoming purified and concentrated and vast. So he can really, as it were, hear, listen to the true nature of things, really take in the reality of things. The Buddha, it said, changing the metaphor, sees things as they are. The Buddha's Dhamma is not adding on anything to life. It's just what's there. So it's blissful for one who has heard Dhamma, who's heard reality, and who sees both metaphors are here, hearing and seeing what's there. For us, of course, 
it, it, we might be able to do that, but probably we're going to he- need to hear what the Buddha actually teaches. We need to listen, really take in what his teaching is. The great, the classical, you know, Buddhist doctrine, you know, the, the Pratitya Samapada, the Lakshanas, the Viparyasas, the Four Noble Truths, and so on and so forth. Really take those in, really meditate on those things, and then see them. See them there before you. Uh, turn that listening, that hearing, that contemplating into living experience, uh, into direct knowing. But then the Buddha says, blissful is non-hatred in the world, restraint towards living creatures. So it's not just about wisdom, it's about love. I've already talked about the Metabhavna, but here the Buddha is describing that his natural metta, his natural loving kindness for all beings. And there's natural restraint. There's no intention to harm any living being whatsoever. There is just this natural loving kindness. There's not a hint of ill will, aversion, hatred anywhere. There's just this free-flowing loving kindness flowing out uh, to beings. It's very important, I think, that when we, 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 we meditate on the Buddha, that we meditate on the Buddha's metta, the Buddha's maitri, his loving kindness. In some ways, the language of compassion can be so profoundly misunderstood because people can often get very sentimental and indulge in sort of pity when they use the word compassion and feel it's about being sad at other people's sorrow. The starting point for any response to any human being is loving kindness. And the Buddha had supreme loving kindness. He just, it was just flowing from him naturally. He didn't have to think about loving kindness. He was just doing it in in all of his behaviour. So yes, loving kindness for all of life, not just for human beings, uh, not just for all human beings, but for every single living being uh, whatsoever. Blissful is passionlessness in the world, the transcending of sensual desires. So this is profoundly blissful. Passionlessness is the translation of viraga. Raga is passion, a very intense craving and passion. Viraga is a a negative uh, prefix here. So the absence of all passion. It doesn't mean that the Buddha doesn't have um, strong positive emotion. Well, transcendent emotion like metta. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that he's sort of, as it were, bloodless and and, um, dull or anything like that. It means, well, I wonder, in fact, if the word viraga is translated into Tibetan as chatral, as in Chatral Sangye Dorje, Bhante's teacher. Chatral means without concerns. Without concerns. Complete freedom from worldly concerns of any kind. That's why Chatral Sangye Dorje was given that uh, name. I, I don't know who named him with that. It wasn't a personal name. It's a very unusual appellation from what I've heard. To be without, to be a yogi without any 
concerned, without any worldly concerns at all. So there's a kind of spontaneity in the best sense and not getting caught up and bound up with all the trips and games uh, that people play and all the rigidity and planning that, that, that people get into, but responding naturally you know, to what arises. I wonder if Chatral is a translation of Viraga. Certainly in uh, Indian um, tradition, the, you have the, uh, the, 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 the Viragin or the Vairagin, which is the name for a renunciate. A renunciate is, a, is somebody without this worldly passion. And there, again, there's this sense of, of, of freedom. But the destruction of the I am conceit, this is the next verse, that is truly the supreme bliss. So the I am conceit, making yourself into someone separate from others, this is the, the, the most supreme bliss of all. When you remove that, when that goes, conceit is analysed very profoundly in Buddhism, mana, is, is the word in, in Pali and Sanskrit. There's the conceit is the view that you are um, uh, superior to others, the view that you're inferior to others, the view that you're equal to others. So any self-definition related to others is a false view. You're positioning yourself. That, when that goes, there is the supreme bliss. There is the supreme bliss. A lot of the time, we're very, very concerned about how others see us, how they relate to us. We can be very concerned about our position in relation to other people. This is the manifestation of self-clinging, of ego, of, of, a, of a, a, a real and fixed idea of self. I think it's very important to call it a conceit. Sometimes I think the language of not-self is too bland, it's too metaphysical. We need to name what the view of having a self really is. It's conceit, it's pride, it's arrogance. And it can take any of these forms, either, oh, I'm so inferior to you, or I'm looking down on you, or insisting that we're all equal. In the enlightened man, there is none of that. None of that positioning. What a relief. What a wonderful thing to put down that burden. Being not bothered in a very positive sense about any kind of position that you might have in the world. All there is is seeing things, seeing people clearly with loving kindness, directly and responding naturally, spontaneously to what they need. Uh, what they need to grow, particularly along the path to enlightenment, what they need for liberation. That is the supreme bliss. It doesn't mean that the other blisses aren't important. You've got a path here, haven't you? You've got a path of solitude and contentment. You've got a path of listening or studying the Dharma and seeing the Dharma. You've got a path of loving kindness to, to all that lives. You've got a path of removing you know, passion and attachment, passion in the sense of defilement and uh, craving and so on, and you've got a path that results in the complete transcendence of self and other 
grasp and grasp. No position, nothing like that. Just the full expression of Buddhahood in relation to whoever you meet without any self-consciousness, any sort of thought of who I am, who you are. Just immediate, unimaginable, that. So that's our exploration of the Muchalinda Sutta from uh, the Udana. It's a very, very rich sutta and I'm giving you uh, a, a reading and I'm sure on this day as you contemplate this particular story there'll be other things that occur to you. Uh, the, 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 the more interpretations and readings, the better. I just want to end, end though on a note of loving-kindness, a note of metta. Um, it's a story of a snake protecting the Buddha. And I said earlier on that the Buddha and his disciples lived side by side with snakes and all sorts of wild animals. And there's a lot of emphasis on loving-kindness in the suttas for the animals that are around them, the creatures that are around them. And it's, it's very important to remember that. Um, and that goes on in, in Buddhist tradition. There's a story I heard, and I haven't met anybody who was there, but I hope if anybody's listening to this who were there would be able to tell this story. But I heard a story that there was a women's retreat at Bhaja, our retreat centre in India, many, many years ago. And one day, all the retreatants were sitting around having lunch, and uh, in, the, in the old um, uh, sort of main area at, at Bhaja, and a great snake came in while they were eating lunch, right into the centre of the room, a king cobra, king, a king cobra, uh, a nagaraja. And the nagaraja uncoiled, opened up his hood and looked around. And of course, that was very frightening because these are very deadly, dangerous snakes. I think, I think I knew that snake because I remember one time giving a talk in the shrine room at uh, at, at Bajaram Padmasambhava, strangely enough, and that night a great black snake came out of the foundations of that very building, and um, my Indian Buddhist friends had to gently lead him by the light and a stick away from the retreat centre. It was wonderful to see their tenderness in relation to this great king from the underworld. But this time the snake had come in, in the middle of the day at lunchtime, and was looking around with his great hood. And somebody said, no, let's not be frightened. Let's do metta for this snake. And they all sat there with their talis in front of them, doing metta for this great snake. Just sat there. I, would, I don't know how they did that. I would have been terrified. I would have run away, I think. But they did metta, these wonderful dharmacharinis and, 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 and dhammamitras and, and women friends in, in our sangha, much braver than me. And after a while, the great Nagaraja came down and went away. So it still happens, this closeness to these great creatures, you know, in our environment, in our world. And the more metta we have, the more they'll be responsive to us, the more we'll feel connected with them. And there is a sutta. It's a kind of metta-sutta called the Ahina-sutta. It's one of the paritas, the protective suttas. Uh, 
And it, the story, the background story, is a, a, a monk dies of a snake bite. And the Buddha is told about it. And he said, well, I think he couldn't have been doing metta to the four orders of Nagas, the four orders of snakes, because if you did metta for them, if you did loving-kindness meditation for them, they won't bite you. Um, that was the teaching he gave the monks. And here is what the Buddha sings uh, or chants on this occasion. First of all, he, he had, there are a number of Pali names here for the different orders of the royal Nagas, the royal snakes. So these strange Pali words. But let me read you to conclude this beautiful little sutta. I have metta for the Virupakas, metta for the Erapattas, metta for the Chabyaputtas, metta for the dark Gotamakas. I have metta for footless beings, metta for two-footed beings, metta for four-footed beings, metta for many-footed beings. May footless beings do me no harm. May two-footed beings do me no harm. May four-footed beings do me no harm. May many-footed beings do me no harm. May all creatures, all breathing things, all beings, each and every one meet with good fortune. May none of them come to any evil. Limitless is the Buddha. Limitless is the Dhamma. Limitless is the Sangha. There is a limit to creeping things, snakes, scorpions, centipedes, spiders, lizards and rats. I have made this safeguard. I have made this protection. May the beings depart. I pay homage to the Blessed One, homage to the seven rightly self-awakened ones. Thank you.